Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Michael Hatton on the seventh day of Pesach. For other Passover content, including our holiday companion and digital podcast downloads, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbi Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem, and welcome to our Pardes podcast on Shvi'i Shel Pesach, the last day of the Pesach holiday in the land of Israel. The seventh day of Pesach is a big date on the holiday calendar. Our rabbis tell us that it commemorates none other than the crossing of the Sea of Reeds as recorded in chapters 14 and 15 of the book of Exodus. Remember that the people of Israel left Egypt triumphantly in chapter 13 and made their way. But as chapter 14 opened, they were redirected. God announced that a detour was in order and that the people were to backtrack and enter the wilderness. This unexpected journey actually led Pharaoh to believe that the people of Israel had lost their way and that they were in fact confused. As they made their way through the wilderness, God once again told them to backtrack and this time they encamped on the shores of the Sea of Reeds. Pharaoh gathered his chariots and his horsemen, and he pursued them. And soon enough, he caught up. The rest, of course, is, as we say, history. The sea parted, the people of Israel entered, the Egyptians pursued, but only the Israelites exited the sea successfully. Pharaoh and his host were overthrown and drowned by the rushing waters. As a result, the rabbis tell us, we commemorate the seventh day of Pesach with another holiday. The first day of Pesach is Yom Tov and the seventh day of Pesach is Yom Tov because of these events. When we look in the text of the Torah itself, however, it is not stated explicitly that the crossing of the Sea of Reeds took place on the seventh day but the chronology, the timeline, is certainly plausible. Rashi spells it out for us. Remember Moshe and Aharon's demand from the first time that they met with Pharaoh. Derech shaloshit yamim nelech bamidbar. Let us go a distance of three days in the wilderness. Rashi does the math. The people of Israel journeyed for three days. Pharaoh heard at that time that they did not, in fact, plan to return, and he began his pursuit and eventually caught up with them on the seventh day. And as a result of that, the seventh day of Pesach is celebrated as an additional holiday. So in terms of the chronology, it is quite plausible. I'll just point out a possible parallel that may have also inspired the rabbinic tradition. And that is, of course, based upon something that we say 
in the Haggadah at the Seder when we speak about the enslavement and the incredibly harsh conditions that the Israelites suffered. We say in the Haggadah, say ulamad mabikesh lavan ha'arami la'asot li'yaakov avinu. Go and learn. What did Lavan the Aramean seek to do to our father Yaakov? Pharaoh only decreed against the male children, but Lavan intended to destroy everything. So this is a discussion in its own right, how we can make that hyperbolic claim that in fact Lavan was worse than Pharaoh. What's important for our purposes is to note that the Haggadah is encouraging us to draw a parallel between the events surrounding Lavan and Yaakov and those surrounding Pharaoh and the Israelites. When we go back to the story of Lavan and Yaakov, we actually discover, and this is in Genesis chapter 31, that after Yaakov flees with his household and with his flocks, the text reports in chapter 31 of Genesis verse 21, Vayasim et panav har hagilad, he set his sights on Mount Gilad. Lavan heard that Yaakov fled on the third day, and he took his brethren with him. Vayirdof acharav derech shivat yamim. He chased him down after seven days. Vayadbeik oto bahar hagilad, and he in fact succeeded in pinning him down at Mount Gilad. So it could very well be that the chronology of the seven days associated with Pharaoh's pursuit is actually based on the earlier parallel, namely Lavan pursuing Yaakov with murderous intent. Only divine intervention saves the day. God will appear to Lavan in a dream and, in, and warn him not to harm Yaakov. And in a similar vein, of course, Pharaoh's machinations will be overthrown as he and his host are covered by the waters. So we may, in fact, have an additional inspiration for the seventh day of Passover being associated with the ultimate victory over Pharaoh, just as it was for Yaakov, our patriarch, who was successfully preserved from the clutches of Lavan on the seventh day after the pursuit began. When we read through the text, we discover that even as God indicates to Moshe that in fact he plans to be glorious against Pharaoh and his host, verse number four of chapter 14, God does not actually indicate to Moshe at that moment what the plan is, which is to say Moshe himself is in the dark as to what exactly will take place. When the Egyptians pursue in verse number nine, and they pin them down as they encamp at the sea, the back of the Israelites to the sea, now being pursued by this host of Egyptian charioteers, they cry out when they see the Egyptians have arrived. They were very afraid in verse number 10, and they cry out to God, and they say to Moshe, verse number 11, in a plaint which will become part and parcel of their dialogue with Moshe from this point forwards. Were there no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us to take us out of Mitzrayim? This is what we said to you while we were yet in Egypt. Chadal mimenu v'na'avda et Mitzrayim. Leave us alone to serve Egypt because it is better to serve Egypt than to die than our death in the wilderness. Moshe turned to the people and he said, Be not afraid. Hityatzavu, stand firm and see the salvation of God that he will do for you this day, because as you see Egypt today, you will never see them again in this fashion forever. Hashem yilachem lachem, God will wage war for you, va'atem tacharishun, and you be silent. So in effect, we might say that the build-up to the crossing of the sea is an intense panic on the part of the people of Israel who fully expect to die at the hands of the Egyptians. It would have been better to remain in Egypt, they say. Moshe says, stand firm. But he does not tell them exactly what will take place because as we have pointed out, he himself does not know and therefore God will turn to him and say in the next verse, Mati tzakelai, why are you crying out to me? Indicating that Moshe was fervently praying for guidance. Tell the people of Israel to journey forth. Lift up your staff and raise your hand, Al-Hayam, upon the sea, Uvika'ehu, and split it so that the people of Israel might enter into its midst on dry land. And the Egyptians will pursue, and I will be glorious against Pharaoh and against his host. And Egypt will know that I am God. So this is now the indication as to what the plan is. But up until this point, Moshe himself, and certainly the Israelites, had no idea. The medieval commentary Ibn Ezra, the great Spanish commentary of the 12th century, asks a very profound question concerning this moment. The moment that God tells Moshe, sorry, the moment that Moshe tells the people, stand fast, you will not wage war, God will save you on this day. And Ibn Ezra asks the following question on verse number 13, Yeshlit Moa, one should be astonished. How could a great multitude of 600,000 men of military age, namely the number of Israelites who left the land of Egypt, how could they be frightened by those that pursued after them? Why do they not want to fight for their own lives and the lives of their children. Ibn Ezra is basically saying, yes, it's a difficult moment. The Egyptians are in hot pursuit, but the lives of the Israelites are, are, are threatened. How come the thought does not even enter their minds that they should fight back and rather than surrender, they should die in battle? How come the thought doesn't enter their minds to defend their wives, to defend their children, to defend their own lives. How could it be? They simply turn to Moshe and they say, why did you take us out of the land of Egypt? We knew that we would die. You would think if a person is threatened 
or a people is threatened by an enemy that seeks their destruction, then of course they will rise up and they will fight that enemy with all of their might. And yet here the people of Israel do not even raise the possibility of fighting for their lives. How is this possible? And Ibn Ezra answers with an extremely profound insight. The answer is because the Egyptians were the masters of the people of Israel. This generation that left the land of Egypt had learned from its youth to bear the yoke of Egypt. And their souls were so very low. How could they now possibly fight with their masters? Ibn Ezra is basically suggesting that the people of Israel were plagued by what we might call today a slave mentality. And it's not a judgment, by the way. It is simply a profound observation. The Israelites had been oppressed for centuries by the Egyptians. The Egyptians had been their overlords and their taskmasters, and they had imposed slavery with rigor and cruelty. Ibn Ezra basically says there's a reason why the Israelites did not even imagine the possibility of fighting the Egyptians for their lives. And the reason is because the thought could never even have taken shape among a people that had been slaves to Egypt for so long that they could rise up against their masters and defeat them was unthinkable. And Ibn Ezra continues the thought. That is why God ultimately determined that the generation that left the land of Egypt, the males that is of military age, had to perish before entering the promised land because they did not have the strength, the wherewithal, the ability to wage war against the Canaanites until a new generation arose, a generation that did not experience galut or exile. nefesh And they had an inspired spirit, an inspired soul raised up high. They were not plagued by the slave mentality. They had the self-confidence and the self-worth to believe that they could succeed. Essentially, Ibn Ezra is indicating to us that even as we celebrate the great triumph associated with crossing Yam Suf, we should bear in mind that, in fact, the entire moment was orchestrated by God. God maneuvered the people into that situation so that the Egyptians would pursue them. God maneuvered the people into that situation so they had no choice but to go forward into the sea. The Egyptians behind in hot pursuit. The path forward through the churning waters. And no other possibilities. Effectively, 
the moment of crossing Yamsuf was the moment when the Egyptian taskmasters and their overwhelming power in the psyche of the people of Israel was smashed and broken and destroyed. The first tentative step in actually achieving psychological, emotional, and spiritual liberation. There is a great chasm between physical liberation and spiritual liberation. It is easy to remove the slave from slavery. It is so much more difficult to remove slavery from the slave. That takes time, and that takes effort, and that takes a series of experiences to build that slave up to believe that that slave can actually seize his or her destiny and move forward even through the dividing waters. Ibn Ezra will say, the generation that left the land of Egypt was not up to the task, but their children were raised to believe in themselves and to believe in God, to trust in their abilities and to trust in God's salvation. And that's what made all the difference. So even as we triumphantly read the song at the sea, we should bear in mind that in fact the people of Israel at that moment were in an extremely fragile situation. And only through a divine orchestration that effectively brought their pursuers to them to be completely shattered and destroyed, only through that orchestration were they capable of finally embarking on the real process of liberation. Not liberation from the brick pits, but liberation from the slave mentality that held the people of Israel in sway for centuries. So may it be for us. We no longer, thank God, experience physical slavery, but sometimes spiritual slavery still holds it still has its hold upon us. May this Shivi'i Shel Pesach be a time when we can actually embark on true liberation, liberation not only of the body, but of the spirit as well, so that we can make the fateful decisions and move forward through the sea towards the promised land. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Be sure to tune in next week as Pardes from Jerusalem features both Rabbi Svi Hirschfeld and Rabbi Alex Israel in conversation. Thanks for listening.